So Acts chapter 6, verse 8. And Stephen, full of grace and power, was doing great wonders and signs among the people. Then some of those who belonged to the synagogue of the freemen, as it was called, and of the Cyrians, and of the Alexandrians, and of those from Sicilia and Asia, rose up and disputed with Stephen. But they could not withstand the spirit and the, the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. Then they secretly instigated men who said, We have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And they stirred up the people and the elders and the scribes, and they came upon him and seized him and brought him before the council. And they set up false witnesses who said, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. For we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses delivered to us. And gazing at him, all who sat in the council saw his face was like the face of an angel. Thanks, Joel. Uh, please keep your Bibles open to Acts 6. We're going to be moving from Acts 6 all the way through Acts 8. It's a big old chunk, and we'll try and highlight the verses as we go through, but we will cover that entire section. Uh, you'll also find this handout on the tables in front of you. That's going to serve you in keeping on track with the talk and what we've summarized thus far. Uh, might I add my own warm welcome to you all, particularly if you're new or visiting. I always feel like I'm missing out when I'm not here at Covent Garden Talks, and uh, all the more when you're in such an exhilarating book of the Bible. So Acts is Luke the physician's account of what the Lord Jesus continued to do after his bodily ascension. You might have heard that before, but it's just good to keep that in our mind. This is the global expansion of the gospel and salvation with it. The events that have led to even us meeting today in Covent Garden and today's passage poses a question to us, um, and it's a question you mightn't have ever asked yourself, uh, but it's also a question that resulted in the first documented martyr of a follower of the Lord Jesus. We'll come to that later, but we better do well to get to the bottom of this question. And here it is. This is the question for today. How is the Jesus movement consistent with God's temple in the Old Testament? I'll say that again. How is the Jesus movement consistent with God's temple in the Old Testament? And that might sound like a big, bit of an egg-headed question, something an academic might ask, the kind of person who recoils at the sight of natural light. But this is a question at the very foundations of your faith in Jesus. And it's, if only because it's not a niche concern as far as the Bible is concerned. For anyone who's read much of Genesis through Malachi, you'll know that temple is a huge theme in the Old Testament. If we were to make a video montage of all of Israel's defining moments in Old Testament history, well, the highest points of joy and relief would be defined by worship of God in the temple of Jerusalem. I was recently away on a weekend with James Healy Hutchinson, who's a scholar in the Psalms, and we did an overview of all 150 Psalms. It was exhilarating, it was enthralling. And whether you do an in-depth survey or a casual flick through, it was plain to see that God's sanctuary, the temple, is the, the delight and the desire 
of God's people. I mean, even the most famous psalm, Psalm 23, ends with King David saying, I shall dwell in the house of the Lord forever. King David's life ambition was to dwell in the presence of the Lord. The question of temple, it's core to the question of what it means to be one of God's people. But I'm not sure if you noticed today, when you woke up, you weren't in Jerusalem. We aren't cultural Israelites. Uh, In fact, if you're anyone like me, the closest you've come to Israel is a tube ride to Golders Green. But even that's several degrees removed from Stephen's day. If Christians are God's people, that's you and me, if we're God's people, why aren't we in Jerusalem? Why aren't we in some holy sanctuary? An Old Testament Jew would balk at the idea that we were here hearing from God's word and that London might be a place for God's presence or that one might obtain forgiveness or pray to the living God outside of Jerusalem. So here's the question again. How is Jesus' movement consistent with God's temple in the Old Testament? And it's the question hot on the lips of the people that Stephen is speaking with in today's passage. In fact, we see that question raised in various forms in chapter 6. But it's most clearly there in verse 13 of chapter 6. If you'll read with me, they say, This man never ceases to speak words against this holy place and the law. You'll see this question or this allegation printed at the top of your handout in front of you. And it sets the agenda for all that Stephen says in chapter 7. And the big takeaway from today's passage, and what we see Stephen arguing the most in chapter 7, is that the Jesus movement is totally consistent with God's uh, temple in the Old Testament. But we'll need to dig a little deeper to see how Stephen proves this. So starting at point one on the handout, enter Stephen, a Christian with integrity. You may have noticed that we met Stephen in last week's passage. In fact, he was the guy described as being of good repute, full of the Spirit and of wisdom, a man full of faith and the Holy Spirit. This is the kind of Christian that the apostles deem as fit for service. He's a keen Christian who's grasped the gospel. He's joyfully serving. He's sticking his neck out for the gospel. He's known for his faithfulness. Maybe, maybe you know a Christian like that. Stephen is an authentic, spirit-filled believer. And it's clear that he's not just serving tables, because in verse 8, we read that Stephen was doing great wonders and signs among the people, which is at least preaching the gospel because he's met with a variety of Jewish believers who begin to dispute with him verbally. And we read in verse 10, they could not withstand the wisdom and the spirit with which he was speaking. It seems that debating with Stephen about gospel matters sounds a little bit like debating with the Lord Jesus about gospel matters. Stephen is full of the spirit. He's steeped in the scriptures. Nothing will stop him speaking the words of Jesus. It's not easy to shake a Christian with integrity, which is why we see his opponents change tact. So in verse 11, they raise up a rabble to lie about Stephen. They say, we have heard him speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And on this false report, will the Jewish leadership get involved? And they've already primed some false witnesses to speak out against Stephen. It's a total stitch-up. Stephen has spoken like Jesus, and he's being stitched up just like Jesus. 
And we saw that accusation at the heart of today's passage in verse 13. This man never ceases to speak words against the holy place and the law, for we have heard him say that this Jesus of Nazareth will destroy this place and will change the customs that Moses has delivered to us. And so there are two matters at play here. Did you notice that? Firstly, the matter of the holy place, the temple. And secondly, the law, or Moses' teaching in the Old Testament. And Stephen, who's been stitched up by the Jewish leadership, well, he's now going to have to explain how the Christian life is totally consistent with the temple and the Old Testament, or more specifically, the teachings of Moses. So we're on point two of the handout. We'll get into the detail of what Stephen is saying here. Stephen, who exposes the hypocrisy of gospel opponents. Uh, Stephen's speech is the longest in all of Acts. Maybe you've noticed that before. It's also a speech that ends in murder. So I'll, I'll try my best to finish on time today. Now, you've been thinking about temple the last few weeks, haven't you, in Acts? The temple was the economic, social, and spiritual center of God's people. So when we think temple, well, we must think presence. We must think forgiveness, and we must think prayer. The temple is where God is present, just in the way that you and I are present in this room here. The temple is where God's people seek forgiveness from God for reconciliation from sin. And the temple is where God's people pray, where they speak to God and are heard. Presence, forgiveness, and prayer. So there can be no weightier matter to dispute The question of location is crucial. Where is God? And Stephen's being accused of threatening to destroy presence, forgiveness, and prayer for God's people. And he must respond to the rabble. And all it takes in chapter uh, chapter 7, verse 1, is the high priest to say, are these things so? And Stephen gets rolling on his defense and his prosecution. And I've summarized his response on the outline there. To the allegation of speaking against the temple, well, Stephen, in summary, says, but heaven is God's throne. But the only way to support this claim is with scriptural evidence. And Stephen does this with an overview of the Old Testament, stories of God's people outside of Jerusalem, a proof from their own scriptures that God was never bound to Jerusalem. And all eyes are on Stephen as he gives this lengthy Bible overview which starts in verse 2 there in chapter 7. God is in Mesopotamia with Abraham. Translation, well, God is very far from Jerusalem with somebody who we definitely agree is one of God's people. In fact, in verse 5, Abraham didn't even own a foot's length in all of Israel, let alone Jerusalem. So are we really going to say that God really wasn't with Abraham outside the land? Uh, Later in verse 9, Stephen speaks of God being with Joseph in Egypt. Translation, well, God is deep in pagan territory with the one Israelite who saves the rest. In fact, the Jewish people wouldn't even be here without him. God is being God in Egypt. He is with his people there. And speaking of Egypt, maybe you've heard of Moses. In verse 21, well, Moses was raised raised by an Egyptian mother. Verse 22, he was educated at the finest Egyptian schools. You can think Oxford or Cambridge, but with hieroglyphics. And he didn't have a rebellious teenage phase and and run away from home to build a temple in the promised land. 
No, when he was 40 years old, he had a run-in with his own people in Egypt. In verse 29, he flees to Midian. That's a pagan land far from Israel. In fact, the closest thing that we get to a physical temple in all of this story is verse 44. You'll know that God spoke to Moses in a tent while Israel wandered outside the promised land in the wilderness. God was never bound to one location. Of course God had been with his people outside the promised land. And rather than a contradiction of Moses, well, it's Moses' very own writings that demonstrate this fact. And as Stephen lands his point in verse 49, he proceeds to quote God from Isaiah. If you'll read with me in verse 49 of chapter 7. Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? I mean, how can anyone think that God is bound to some earthly location? No, heaven is God's throne. And he kicks up his feet on the earth like it's his ottoman, furniture that he's crafted personally. I mean, are we mad to think that a man-made building could be God's cage in Jerusalem? I work in a church called St. Helens in central London, and our premises look really iconically church-like. You can think church emoji. And so it's a big tourist attraction for people who love old church architecture. If that's you, we don't have that in common. Uh, But it's an absolute magnet for people who think that God lives there. Uh, The other day, a young lady came by to ask if she could come inside and light a candle and pray for her friend's dad, who just broke his neck, skiing. I mean, she hadn't been to a church before, but she got this really scary news, and she thought, well, that's what I'll do. And it's rare that I'm lost for words, not because I'm especially smart, smart, but I tend to talk a lot. Uh, I wanted to say something like, if you trust in the Lord Jesus, well, you can pray anywhere. Uh, Then don't worry about candles. I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't have any candles when he was in the Garden of Gethsemane. But she was obviously quite emotional, uh, and so I got caught between not wanting to offend her and not wanting to encourage her superstition. And all I managed to say was, uh, sorry, we don't do candles here. And then I offered to pray with her at the door. But she ended up Googling a Catholic church just around the corner and went off there because she thought they'll have candles. I mean, what a tragedy, what a tragedy to, to mistake the age of the risen Lord Jesus as an era in which God is bound to stuffy old buildings. The Lord hears prayers everywhere. St. Helens has the old relics, it's got the stained glass. But great St. Helens is just a stuffy old building. I mean, if it was renovated or if it collapsed, we'd just meet elsewhere. Just a moment ago, we were, Joel and I were sitting outside looking inside as people were here dancing. This place is a space used for a multitude of things. One week, it's here, we're speaking God's word. The next week, it's a fashion sample sale. There is no one place more holy than another, even one as majestic and echoey as this one. In the age of the risen Lord Jesus, the age of the pilgrimage is over. The obsolation of the Jerusalem temple is one of the defining features of Jesus' ministry. Clinging to Jerusalem... And its temple is like clinging to an expired credit card, unwilling to use the new issue. Something much better is here. Something that's actually useful is here. You might know that the Jerusalem temple was actually physically destroyed in 70 AD, uh, which we take it as shortly after Luke wrote his book of Acts. But even this isn't what seals its fate. 
Its destruction merely confirms its uselessness in the age of the risen Lord Jesus. And Luke wants us to be really clear on this. So Stephen's not merely advocating for some stone temple to be disregarded. No, he's looking beyond. He's looking to something global. Everyday worship granted by the spirits that all might turn to Jesus to the four corners of the globe. In the age of the risen Lord Jesus, the age of the pilgrimage is over. So to the allegation of plotting to destroy the temple, Stephen, in summary, says, but heaven is God's throne. But is he being consistent with the teachings of Moses here? So we're on the second sub-point, and this is the second part of that allegation that was leveled at Stephen's teaching. The Jewish opponents who have stitched Stephen up, well, they would consider themselves Moses' fan club. But it's not clear they've actually understood Moses. And Stephen shows this in a couple of ways. So first, did you notice how much of Stephen's speech is dedicated to Moses? We didn't read through much of it, but even visually, we'll see that there are these three 40-year blocks dedicated to Moses' life. It takes up about half of Stephen's lengthy speech. This is a lot of text. So Stephen's intent on dealing directly with the allegations that Jesus' teaching tramples Moses' law. But the way that he does this is by pointing out how the very people who claim to be Israelites, who claim to be God's people, rejected Moses. So we see that in 7 verse 26. If you look, look with me, Moses sees two Israelites fighting. You might have remembered this story from Exodus. He says, men, you are brothers. Why do you wrong each other? But the man who is wronging his neighbor thrusts him aside, saying, who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And Stephen seems quite interested in this because he raises this point again in verse 35. The rejection of Moses by everyday Israel is important to Stephen's case. But here he even adds that Moses is this man that God sent as both ruler and redeemer by the hand of the angel who appeared to him in the bush. Moses is God's appointed leader, rejected by Israel. And it all culminates there in verse 39, the golden calf incident, where Stephen says, Our fathers refused to obey him, but thrust him aside, and in their hearts they turned to Egypt. So this Jewish mob present themselves as Moses' fan club. They're accusing Stephen of getting the Old Testament wrong. But Stephen is suggesting that not only have they misunderstood Moses, but they are like God's people resisting his teaching. And we see this, I think, really clearly in verse 37. Verse 37, where Stephen says, This is the Moses who said to the Israelites, God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. So by rejecting Stephen's teaching, well, they're rejecting Jesus. And they're rejecting this Moses, uh, this prophet that Moses spoke of. Stephen's unmasking this mob as hypocrites. If you reject Jesus as God's prophet, you reject Moses' Old Testament. And before you think, okay, maybe this is just a one-off, this one-off thing that Israelites reject the one who God sends them. Look how Stephen ends his speech there in 51. In verse 51, it's so dramatic. It's reaching a climax, a fever pitch here. You stiff-necked people uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. 
As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. That's Jesus. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So this angry mob who accuses the Christian world and Stephen with it of getting the Old Testament wrong about Jesus. Well, it's their fathers who persecuted every prophet who came to them. And they're just like them because they killed Jesus, the righteous one of God, the savior of the world. They received Moses' word, but they did not keep it. It's shocking hypocrisy. So the allegation was raised. This man never ceases to speak words against his holy place and the law. And Stephen's response is, well, your understanding of the temple is outmoded and you never understood Moses. Or to put it differently, when you reject Jesus, then you are speaking against God's holy place and the law, which is proven briefly in point three on the handout. Stephen is brutally murdered, proving his point. So reading from verse 54, when they heard these things, they were enraged and they ground their teeth at him. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven and saw the glory of God and Jesus standing at the right hand of God. So Stephen gazes into heaven and sees the Lord enthroned. He sees Jesus at the right hand of the Father, the Son of Man, in full authority, the very presence of God, even as he's brutally murdered. Read with me verse 57 to 58 there. Chapter 7. They cried out with a loud voice and stopped their ears and rushed together at him. Then they cast him out of the city and stoned him. And in verse 59, even as they're stoning Stephen, well, Stephen prays to the Lord Jesus, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Jesus, the place of God's presence, the place of prayer. And in verse 60, even as Stephen is brutalized, just as his Lord was, just as every prophet who came to the stiff-necked people was persecuted. He prays, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Jesus, the place of forgiveness. Presence, prayer, and forgiveness. These three things synonymous with the temple. Well, they're no longer centered around a building in Jerusalem. They're no longer centered around stuffy old buildings. They are centered around the Lord Jesus, enthroned in heaven. And only Christians have truly understood Moses because they have received the one that Moses spoke of. And so only by the Jesus movement can anyone enjoy presence and prayer and forgiveness from God. It's centered in the Lord Jesus. And briefly, in verse uh, 1 of chapter 8, we see that these privileges are being taken out of Jerusalem. It says, uh, And there arose on that day a great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. This, This moment of death for Stephen is the watershed moment for the gospel going out. As a a little side note here, 
I'm actually named after this Stephen. Uh, my Sri Lankan ancestors took on their name as a surname after they were converted by English missionaries. I mean, beautifully, a story of how the gospel went out from Jerusalem to the four corners. And I grew up thinking, oh, Stephen's story, it's a bit of a downer, isn't it? I mean, this guy died. Why can't it be named after someone cool like Abraham or Solomon? But I think Stephen's presented here as one who's just like the prophets. He's in this amazing line of faithful proclaimers of God's word. You might have read before, uh, back in chapter 6, his face shone like Moses's. I mean, he proclaimed the truths of Jesus. He is opposed and rejected for it. He is ultimately killed for it. And his death is the flashpoint of such severe persecution that Christians are forced out of their homes in Jerusalem, taking not only their Christian lives, but the gospel with them. I mean, this is amazing. And you talk about irony. You stone this bold proclaimer, Stephen, because you want to silence him. And it triggers such a mass scattering of bold proclaimers just like Stephen that here we are, 2,000 years later, proclaiming his very words in Covent Garden. And it's a word producing believers who will continue to hold out this offer of God's presence, of forgiveness, and prayer in Jesus through the gospel that is ever on their lips. So where does this all leave us today? Well, I think the only way to understand the Old Testament is to conclude that Jesus is the righteous one of God. The only way to live now is by enjoying God's presence and prayer and forgiveness in Jesus alone. I think this was the hard truth for Stephen's contemporaries. We can see by the type of incident that ensued by Stephen speaking these words. But it's also a hard truth for anyone who is naturally religious, anyone who has a tendency to put their trust in places and relics and priests and rituals, which I think is everyone in some measure. It's a shocking truth that God is not enthroned in the temple. I think it's shocking because part of us wants to visit Lourdes to get healed or go to Mecca or make confession in a small booth or be doused with holy water and incense by a man in strange robes in an echoey and majestic and grand building. But if presence and forgiveness and prayer are all centralized, located in Jesus, well, we're liberated from rituals, we're liberated from gurus, from relics, from places. How is the Jesus movement consistent with God's temple and Moses? Well, the Lord says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Luke is giving us certainty that the true relationship with God centers around the true temple, the true temple of Jesus. And anyone who reads Moses and the prophets, honestly, will come to the same conclusion. Shall we pray? Please, Father, we pray we would not be like those who are stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ears. Uh, would we not resist the Holy Spirit, but accept this, this amazing new era that the risen Lord Jesus has brought about, this era of presence and prayer and forgiveness in him alone. And would we be utterly convinced that the Christian movement is producing true, authentic people of God, centered around worship in the temple of your Son. Amen.